I'm Jay Mac. And I'm Jess. And you're listening to Base Code Podcast. Hey, Jay Mac. Hey, hey. What up? Not much. I see you've got a beer there. What are you drinking? Um, this is a Yingling Lager or, or Youngling. It's from uh, Pennsylvania. And my buddy introduced me to it in college. And they used to really, I don't think they distributed a whole lot, but technically their label says it's the oldest uh, beer or oldest brewery in America, uh, again, from Pennsylvania. And he used to bring it back when he went home for Thanksgiving or Christmas. He'd bring back a case because we couldn't get it where we were. And I just fell in love with it then. In complete fairness, it's a pretty cheap beer by money standard, but I think it's a good value beer. And... It's actually one that I, it's the secret ingredient in my chili. Ah, I saw this on, on Twitter. It looked really tasty. Yeah, so um, so basically I get a six pack of it. I use one bottle while I'm um, kind of making the beef, uh, you know, saute it in, in about a half bottle. And then about the rest of the half kind of goes to rinse the meat and, you know, maybe just a, a little bit stays in for the sauce. But um Okay. Yeah, it's just kind of a little touch I learned. Of course, also in college, uh, I've tried different beers over the years, but this one is pretty good as far as like it doesn't have an overbearing taste, either good or bad, and uh, but it leaves a little bit of that smoothness, like, and kind of accentuates the heat. Okay, nice. I've often used like a little bit of dark chocolate to get some smoothness, but uh, yeah, sounds Ooh. good. Someone on Twitter recommended um, chocolate. I, anytime I think chocolate, I think like a mole. And so that's more of like a Texas style chili. Yeah, you don't want much, like just a cube of like dark chocolate. And it you don't taste, mm. like you don't feel like you're eating something that's made with chocolate. It just gives everything a bit of smoothness. It's like, you know, you've, I've seen bolognese recipes where they put a little bit of milk in it and you don't taste milk, but it just yeah. rounds things off. Sure. No, that's true. I I like uh, I, m- I might try it next time because because other people have kind of said that, and I, I know other people do put so many random things in chili. I I don't like when chili becomes like I was saying, kind of like a mole where you throw like forty five things in it. Don't get me wrong, yeah. mole is awesome, but it's just not like chili in my. It's like sauce. Yeah. So so are you a beans in the chili or no beans in the chili? Because I know that's very controversial. Beans. Beans. Yeah, I like beans too. Yeah. Well. I'm Midwest, so my chili is very traditional. It's very hearty. You know, some might even say it's it's stew-esque. Okay. But I mean, again, I've tried all the chilies around the country. Like anytime there's a chili cook-off when I'm traveling, like I go. If, if someone serves chili, I get a, I get a little bit of it. I like, I, I like it. Uh, so, you know, it's definitely something I've sampled. But my recipe hasn't really changed um, from like the family recipe other than a couple of the kind of aforementioned okay, now, cool. now not secret ingredients. So. <laughs> All right. So shall we uh, take a bit of a detour into some technical stuff for a little bit? Yeah, probably so. I feel like the first episode. Or should we, should we stay with J-Max beer reviews and cooking tips? <laughs> no, no, pivot? probably not. There's only a few of those. Yeah, we should pivot. In fact, we should pivot pretty deep technicals because I, I did feel like that first episode maybe was a little um, softer, so to speak. So, but, I, you know, it's going to lay the foundation on like what we're working on and why. And I, I think it's good to hear those behind the scene things too sometimes. But to make sure we're bringing it back technical, yes, let's let's get pretty deep technical this time. 
Okay. So should we talk about our projects? Yeah. Tell me tell me about Gifty Duck. Tell me what it's built in. Like let's talk about the stack and okay. then I'll talk about the shift stack and then maybe let's talk about infrastructure. Sure. And deployment processes and all that stuff. So let's just kind of ping pong back and forth. You start. Gifty Duck. What's the stack? So it's a Vue SPA with a Laravel backend. Um, I'd wanted to build it as an SPA because I just wanted to play with more SPA stuff. And my co-founder, who's non-technical, one of the first things he said to me is, I want it to be one of those ones where you click it and it doesn't reload the page. And I'm like, yep, I know Ooh, what nice. you mean. Okay. <laughs> so that was that was good. So um, I went for like the mono repo approach where I'm basically just using, you know, view and everything is in the resources JS directory as opposed to having a separate backend repo and a front-end repo using like Vue CLI. Um, which gives you some benefits. I used to hate mono repos like at first. And then once you work on a project that is, you know, kind of multi-headed, if you will, like that, like it, yeah. it makes total sense. Like I have no problem with it anymore. But I remember in the beginning I was like really, oh, I don't want to mix all this stuff. But yeah, it makes sense. It does. It makes things easier to kind of... Um, like when you're dealing with separate repos, you've got to kind of make sure you keep everything in sync. If you're updating the API and the front ends depending on it, you've got to kind of make sure they all deploy and merge correctly at the same time. Exactly. Um, which all gets like there's benefits to it, sure, but um, yeah, I'm I'm a fan of both. I I've used both. The project I'm working on at the moment is separate repos. That's my UPS battery in the background beeping that wants to be changed. <laughs> oh. I've got like an entire server cabinet right next to me here. I'm going to go push the power button on it. Cool. It turned itself off while I was trying to find the button, so we're good. So, sorry for that interruption, everybody. I don't know how much of that will cut. <laughs> no, but I mean, yeah, everything has a trade-off. So, like, I don't have a problem with them. I guess for me, I tend to like that ability to see the changes to both parts of the repo, like kind yeah. of in one PR versus whatever benefits might come from separating them so yeah that's, and a, I mean, that's a winning benefit to me yeah another one is that i can pass data into the view components in the first request almost like we're getting into like you know inertia style um where you're serializing json and putting it in your html so the view component has access to it instantly so the current user a few things like that so i don't need to immediately start making api requests as soon as they uploads um and I built this before Inertia existed. If I was building it again, I'd probably seriously look at something like that because I think it might have solved what I've done in a better way. But anyway, um, so yeah, Vue SPA, Laravel backend, mono repo. When I started it, I wanted to have as little um, kind of like dealing with the server, the DevOps side of things. I wanted to not have to worry about that too much. Um, servers and all that is a, is a hobby of mine, but it's not something I want to become my job. So I went with Forge to start with, Laravel Forge. Sure. But then, um, you know, at Laracon, when Taylor announced Vapor and the serverless stuff, like a new kid seeing a shiny toy, I'm like, oh, I've got to change it. I've got to switch to Vapor. <laughs> You're totally new shiny. I knew you were. I just, I never really called you out on it before. No, I'm definitely, definitely a bit of new shiny. Um, I think as we talked about in the, in the last episode. <laughs> I'm like the complete opposite. I mean, there was, my, my business partner was happy to, to kind of like pay for the, the cost of it. Um, he was really excited about it. He really thought the project was just going to become this viral success overnight. They all do. 
So he really wanted something that would scale. And I'm like, well, you know, serverless will scale. Like premature optimization, all that sort of stuff. But I got to play with the new Shiny and it was fun. I think the ability to see it for what it is, though, is important. Not not every developer has that. A lot of developers will, will justify the new Shiny yeah. kind of falsely, I guess, if you will. And they never really kind of like retrospect on that to say you know what, probably didn't quote unquote need that, you know, but we learned. Yeah, I think because it's a personal project as well. Like I, one of the things I wanted to get out of it was learning. Yeah. And so playing with, with serverless stuff, playing more with a bit of AWS was all, yeah, stuff I wanted to do. So. And I think when you're not under a deadline per se, and you're not getting paid, maybe like it's, you know, you have to find rewards in other ways. So learning is absolutely one of them. So again, I totally get that. I think where it's dangerous is when you're trying to get something out the door and you're just kind of allowing yourself to like chase these shiny things. Yeah, like bike shedding and yak shaving and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's when you really can't do it. That's when I have no tolerance for it. Like in your case, totally yeah. fine. I get it. Um, I, I, I kind of, again kind of go hardcore the other way just because I have made that mistake in my younger programming days of like working on a client thing and yeah. just I'm going to use this and this new framework and framework Y and it's going to be awesome. And, you know, three months later, the client's like, where is yeah. this? And I'm I'm not even close, you know? And I mean, it, it is hard with tech. Like if I go into an old, like a really old project and need to do something on it and find out it's using like Bower or something that's no longer supported everything's deprecated it's like well i've got to upgrade to something but you know there is definitely that balance of you know being practical and being you know up to date with things cool okay so gifty duck Laravel, view you're deploying with forge and now vapor yeah i got one of the early invite things you know you go on the waiting list and nice got straight on that and and played with that and i've like hooked it up with things like honey badger to do like exception tracking using GitLab CI to do like kind of handle the, the continuous integration and deployments and all that. Even though I'm like the sole developer, I still try and follow a lot of like, you know, good practices with um, the DevOps side of things. I've got linters running in builds. Like I, I can't merge. Like I still, you know, create branches for features and make sure the build passes before I merge them, all that sort of stuff. Nice. So in there, why GitLab over GitHub? The previous company I worked with used GitLab and I really liked it. I found that it's like issue tracking features were, um, I just, I just preferred them. I, I won't say better, but I preferred them. Really? Um, the CI stuff at the time, GitHub actions didn't exist. So it was kind of like, you know, you could use Travis, things like that. That's fair. So yeah, it was one part familiarity and another part features that it had. That's fair. GitHub now is dramatically different than GitHub yeah. a few years ago, especially if you're working on kind of a uh, shoestring budget, so to speak. Uh, anecdotally, though, like uh, I do feel like GitLab is way more popular for Australia or the other side of the world. I know like Dorinda uses it, for example. Yeah, yeah, he does. Yeah. It's got a lot of good settings for working with teams in terms of like enforcing policies and stuff around who can merge, when things can merge. I don't know if, if GitHub is quite up to that these days or whether you've got to go on a paid plan. Sure. I guess it's just interesting because out of kind of the big three, 
uh, Bitbucket being the other, which is Atlassian, which is an Australian company. Australian, yeah. Yeah. So I just thought that that's yeah. kind of funny that don't lean to that, which has had private repos like forever. No, I think I think probably the biggest thing was just that you know it was what my the previous company I worked for used, so I had that familiarity. And I and to be honest, I did initially create the project on GitHub, and I cannot remember exactly what the tipping point was, but I'm like, no, I need to go to GitLab. It's got the features I I wanted. So. Sure. And that kind of goes back to what we were saying, like going with what you know when you're wanting to get set up and running yeah. quickly, you know, uh, is kind of the ultimate answer there. So I, I totally understand. I was just kind of curious for conversation's yeah, cool. sake. So that's, yeah, that's probably, cool. uh, I don't know if any more questions you can think of that people might want to know that you're interested in. Not just yet, but I didn't expect to cover the whole stack in one <laughs> chat. So I can go deep on anything. I really want to hear about shift. So let's let's switch to shift and then maybe we'll that'll get us deeper on some questions and then we can go back to you to answer the same questions for Gifty Duck. Yeah, I feel like shift is particularly interesting because it's not just like a you know, a typical application. It's actually modifying code and I imagine it deals heavily with, with workers and queues, all this sort of stuff. So Yes. So there's two parts of shift, not exactly the same as you, uh, but there's a there's a quote unquote front end, what I call it, or the website, uh, which is laravelshift.com. And that's basically where you log in. It's a Laravel application, uh, you know, just full page refresh, nothing fancy, uses things like Socialite, for example, to uh, connect you to GitHub, you know, GitLab, Bitbucket. Some of those didn't exist when shift uh, first started. So I, I PR'd those in into socialite so now now they're there what else was i using stripe straight out of the box didn't use cashier and right when i was building laravel um spark was coming out and and actually i'm sure some people remember this spark was kind of initially or at least a version of it was initially announced as as potentially being open source and then um i think by the time it was officially released uh you know it, it was something else entirely um, but I also remember talking to Taylor about that at a Laracon or something. And, and he was saying like, you know, if you just want one-off purchases, like it's not really what you want. Like it's going to yeah. be too much, you know, you don't need all of spark anyway. So just use cashier. Um, so I did. And, uh, so that's pretty much the front end. It's, it's socialite mixed with a very simple order flow cashier and then a dashboard. And there's been some things bolted on over the years, like an invoices page and you and I work together on like the now shifty plan subscription yeah. service. So there's a little dashboard where you can manage that plan, manage your repo, manage members of the team. So maybe over time, aspects of it have been built out as Spark, but you're talking about almost, like I said, five years now. So it's not like I built all this initially. Like, did I end up maybe getting somewhat close to what resembles spark now maybe uh, but again spark wasn't there at the time and i had no idea i was going to get there in the end so why incur all that upfront cost okay and what about like hosting wise uh right now i'm just DigitalOcean. Nice. um i kind of like messing with servers although i'm not a server person uh and again forge might not have even been around way back okay. then i don't know probably was but wasn't as popular of course it is now so and again, I, I kind of, that was like, you know, how you were saying like some parts were fun for you. Like, so you wanted to check it out. Yeah. 
like setting up the servers was still fun for me. So I liked that was my shiny, even though it wasn't shiny. It was that was my outlet, so to speak. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's the front end, the web application, the back end or the shift engine, uh, as I call it, is pretty polyglot. It's glued together by a PHP runner, but it's it's all sorts of stuff underneath it's whatever tool you need for the job it really is honestly it's unix commands via shell scripts uh it's actually uh two separate applications one's a very very tiny perl application okay which is just some things that um the internet told me perl did better so i saved those and wrapped them up into a very tiny perl script which i just call out through again php and then there's a very tiny um Go application. I was interested in Go for a little while, and I wrote kind of like a little file IO bit and compiled it down. Again, it was a something I was interested in, and it was so low-level component that it works, and it does such a tiny thing like Unix commands do anyway, so I've left it over the years. So there's a, there's a 0.001% built in Go. Nice, okay. And then again, the rest, the rest is PHP. Um, and I think a long time ago, I talked about some of the finer details uh, on Full Stack Radio with Adam. Uh, so I'll link that in the show notes. So if you're really interested in like kind of the genesis of like regex and abstract syntax trees and that kind of stuff, you know, you can check some of that out. Uh, but I can also talk about it again here. But the point there is that, you know, the rest was some of the low level stuff was Unix commands and these other little programs outside of PHP I, I built. But PHP glues it all together. There's some packages, you know, that help me interact with the GitHub and GitLab and Bitbucket APIs. So is it is it susceptible to break due to bits of code that it finds that it kind of like chokes on? Because it's got to deal with like, yeah, any random stuff people throw in there, right? Yeah, I treat Shift very, you know, MVP, very rugged, maybe a little looser and dirtier than than other developers might. You know, and it's something Adam actually said, I think, way back even on that full stack radio episode, like I never looked at it this way, but a lot of people see it as like a very ambitious project. But I think the way I kind of dodged that was just this divide and conquer approach. And it was something, you know, I remember like in CS 100, like my very first computer science class in college, like that was kind of what the, I remember the professor saying that, and I was kind of big into philosophy as well. So like, I just, it stuck with me, like divide and conquer, divide and conquer you know? Okay. And so I just, the point is I broke it up into really small chunks. Like when you think about every possible boundary case, let's say I want to, I want to convert a method to its new name in a new version of Laravel, right? Methods get renamed all the time. Okay. So if I want to do that, there's so many things that you actually have to think about, right? There's context and PHP is a dynamic language. So is this really the correct method being used okay well i could look at a lot of other things to infer that context i can look at arguments and the import and the class reference and even surrounding code and now you're starting to get just nuts right so maybe in the beginning i just do that a naive way right and that solves it for probably 50 60 70 percent a majority of people and then the rest of the time even to this day is tackling like additional boundary cases of that and getting it as close as possible to 
you know, a hundred percent. And it's really never going to be a hundred percent. Like again, the goal's not a hundred percent, but you know, the closer I can get to, to it, I think the more magical users think shift is. Yeah. So that sounds like a really practical approach, which is pretty cool. So you mentioned you're using DigitalOcean for the website. How, like, how is the backend running, especially when you've got all these different languages? Um, what's the infrastructure look like there? So at first, everything was single server DigitalOcean, and it wasn't even that beefy of a box <laughs> or virtual box. And when shifts started to fail or every now and then, you know, hang, they would eventually bring down the server. Uh, and whether this was like, a deploy thing or unexpected code or like just a huge project or like github was down there's all sorts of reasons and sooner or later i wisened up to that and was like uh when the server's down people can't even buy a shift yeah so i didn't want to do anything that would impede that so i learned that pretty quick uh so that lasted a few months and then i split it out into two servers so uh, a queue server was separate or a job server uh, and that basically ran the shifts. So I would originally using the database queue. Uh, now it's up to Redis because at some point the database queue was like deemed not for production. And it was kind of like a big back and forth on GitHub issues. Until this morning. Oh, yeah, which is funny. Yeah, we've come full circle. <laughs> uh, so anyway, the point is, is like eventually swapped it to Redis. It was it was a, it more performant that way, uh, too, to be fair. Uh, and I can use Redis for other things uh, that are nice, you know, caching and so forth. So all that was good and all fine in the end. And then one more tweak over the years was I put a load balancer in front of it because I think the first time I was on LayerCon online, just got like a stampede to the web server and then the web server crashed and I missed out potentially on sales again. So anything that can affect the revenue I've tried to build in some redundancy. I kind of don't care if the job server goes away because I can quickly spin up a new one and point the queue at it and then it'll catch up, you know, in 20 minutes. Yeah. You know, so I tweak that every now and then I'll add another worker on days like today where I know there's going to be a lot of shifts, uh, but most of the time it's fine. Today being Laravel 7 release day for those in the future. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, today was the big, the big Laravel 7 release. Uh, so, you know, I beefed it up for that. And our release days too, now there's some automation that runs for subscribers that automatically kicks off jobs to even just send them a pull request that simply does, you know, some tweaks to their code and mostly like automatic composer update and automatic known package, you know, constraint updates for them uh, automatically. So that also takes a lot of work because there's, you know, a few hundred projects running that subscription plan now uh, to kind of help them automatically always stay up to date. They don't even have to go get a shift on the website. It's just done for them. Yeah, that's part of the, the value you provide. Exactly. So as those have grown on Tuesdays specifically, which is kind of like the Laravel release day, not just new releases, but the weekly releases, um, I definitely have spun up an extra worker for those days. But to that point, instead of kind of manually doing that and watching that i am interested in messing with vapor like you did uh kind of initially but now i think i'm at a place where it might make sense to see if you know laravel uh, shift could be something that uh runs you know through vapor or or more on demand and the only reason i haven't taken a harder look at that is because of kind of that polyglot engine you know where i'm using 
several different pieces of technology. Like, I just don't want to have to go back and write like the Perl stuff and this and that, but yeah, I guess with Vapor, you are pretty tied to their PHP image that they use. So yeah, I'm sure I could wrap that up. And again, it, it might not be Vapor. Uh, it could just be, you know, something more on demand. Some Docker sort of thing, but more of like an auto scaling kind of approach. Yeah. Yeah. On demand or auto scaling, you know, whatever it might be. But at the end of the day, like who knows if that's less than just paying for 10 bucks a month for some low-end server you know what i mean like yeah for sure probably not so maybe i'm just not at that scale is the point uh and that's kind of why i've done the incremental bit right or wrong uh again not taking away from from any other approach it's just the approach and the path i've gone yeah but it's you know it's worked out one of the kind of the you know the the sales things behind vapor or the sales behind vapor is it's much more of a hands-off approach you don't need to think about it so much but if you're the kind of person that doesn't mind you know having a bit more of a hands-on approach with your your service stuff then that's fine too yeah i think taylor wouldn't like me in that regard because my pain tolerance is maybe a little higher because i'm willing to go build out those workers just because it's so it's not that i have a high pay tolerance per se because like we talked about earlier like i actually have a a pretty low one because i just do kind of the simplest thing that can work and i don't really worry about the rest yeah but because I'm only building out a worker and I already have the shell scripts to build out workers that I've acquired over incrementally and slowly over five years, like I'm only building one once every year, maybe, you know, and basically just rebuilding it then. So it's, yeah, it's just not a lot of pain. Yeah. So, and there is, there is benefit in, you know, intimately knowing, you know, every step of your, your infrastructure and how it all works and, and again, sooner or later, I'm going to take the time to look at these other things when I feel like I'm a little closer to that scale. But for now, uh, I have a little build worker shell script. I can build a digital ocean box in however long it takes that shell script to run, which is, you know, maybe two minutes. And yeah, I just point it at the Redis server and there it is. It's ready. It's running less than five minutes. You've still got automation and all that sort of stuff there. I mean... I think that should be... That's the key point. Yeah, that should be the goal of, I think, most developers is if you're doing any repetitive task, automate it, you know? Yeah. Whether it comes back to, like, testing, you know, if you're manually clicking your app, clicking through your app every time you do it, write a test for it, automate it, automate everything. (laughs) Yeah. It's okay to be lazy. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, I think that's probably good for, like, kind of the initial infrastructure. And again, if there's any aspects of this that we glossed over, you want to hear more about or whatever, you know, let us know on Twitter and uh, we can keep covering that in one of these future series. But I think next time, maybe we'll go a little deeper into some of the technical decisions uh, that we talked about today. Because, again, we like to keep these under 30 minutes and we're getting pretty close to 30. So let's save that for next time. Cool. Alrighty, see you next week. Have a good one, see ya. Show notes for this episode can be found at basecodefieldguide.com slash 18.